Voters tend to be rationally ignorant. They're not well informed. Uh, and I'm not faulting voters for that either. Citizens have other things to do with their lives. They have their jobs, they have their families. They want to engage in recreation. They might just want to relax. So you're putting a pretty big burden on citizens if you're saying, well, they should be well-informed voters. I mean, that's just the way the political process works. That's why we want to have a constitutionally constrained and limited government. That's why the American founders designed it that way. Welcome to another installment of the Essential Scholars podcast series. I'm Rosemarie Fike, and today we're having our second part of our conversation on economist James Buchanan. I'm joined once again by Dr. Randall Holcomb. Dr. Holcomb is the DeVoe Moore Professor of Economics at Florida State University. He's a senior fellow at the James Madison Institute and the Independent Institute, and a research fellow at the Law and Economics Center at George Mason University. I am very excited to continue our conversation. Thank you again for joining us. Yeah, thanks for inviting me, Rosie. So last time we talked about the kind of foundational ideas that Buchanan um, put forth, and we talked about some of the core uh, components of public choice. And so today, I wanted us to talk about you know, how we can use those ideas to make sense of modern problems. So in your view, what are some of the biggest issues you know, today where you know, we might need a dose of Buchanan? Well, one thing that Buchanan was big on was the importance of constitutional rules. Uh, and so he, he wrote uh, quite a bit about that. Uh, the calculus of consent that he wrote with Gordon Tullock um, was a, an analysis of constitutional democracy. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, looking at contemporary government, um, one of the things that we have veered away from uh, is the emphasis on, on constitutional rules. But if you go back to the, the founding of our country, uh, you go back to the Constitutional Convention back in 1787, um, essentially uh, the, the founding fathers were trying to design a government to protect individual rights. <clears throat> so if you were to ask the founders that, you know, back in 1776, you know, tell me in one word, What's the fundamental principle behind this new American government? That one word would have been liberty, that we're designing a government to protect your liberty. And today, you just grab someone off the street and say, you know, tell me in, in one word, what's the fundamental principle behind our government? I think that word would likely be democracy, that we're a democracy, government does what the people want. Uh, and that... Uh, that's not what the, the American founders had in mind when they when they created a, a, our a government. Uh, that if you read the Declaration of Independence, if you read the Constitution, the word democracy never appears. Uh, we had a constitutionally limited government. We had constitutional rules, uh, and the Tenth Amendment to the Constitution says that the powers that aren't explicitly given to the federal government reserved to the states or to the people. So uh, the idea wasn't to have a government that carried out the will of the people. 
there were limited enumerated powers, constitutional rules uh, that determine what government does. So fast forward to today, following your, your question, I think way too much we're emphasizing the country being a democracy. The founders didn't intend it to be that way. And one of the things that Buchanan emphasized was the importance of constitutional rules. Um, so uh, it would be, uh, I think, beneficial to us as Americans if we went back and, and looked at the Constitution and had a constrained government that protected our liberty, uh, that was a, a government that was constrained by constitutional rules, as opposed to thinking about the, the government as a democracy. And uh, Buchanan uh, was very big on classical liberal ideas uh, that uh, they just didn't sit in the background. I mean, mostly when he did his, his public choice analysis, his economic analysis, he was acting as a social scientist. Uh, but uh, also in the back of his mind, one of the objectives uh, of social science he viewed was to preserve people's liberty. I mean, unlike physical science, where we're trying to understand the way that the world works, with social science, the whole idea is to understand the way society works in order to try to make it better. And Buchanan saw great advantage to preserving individual freedom, allowing individuals to make their own choices, and having a constitutionally limited scope of government rather than a government that carries out the will of the majority. So did Buchanan give any examples in his work of the type of constitutional constraints that he might recommend that we don't currently have? Probably the biggest example I can think of is uh, that uh, he was a champion of uh, a balanced budget rule in the Constitution. Uh, he'd like to see the budget balanced. Uh, and that way, when we're looking at government spending, you have to weigh the costs against the benefits right now. Uh, you can't pass those costs into the future by using debt. So that's one constitutional rule uh, that Buchanan pretty heavily emphasized. So to follow that up, it does not seem like members of the legislative branch would ever support such a constitutional rule. How does one... You know, if, we, if, if the government needs to be constrained from certain things through constitutional constraints, how do we get those constraints where they don't currently exist? Well, Rosie, that's a tough question. <laughs> uh, you know, if, if there were an easy answer to that, I think, I think that we already would have done it, right? Mm. So, so, you know, part of it is, is appealing to popular opinion uh, that if we think about the, the motivations of legislators, their first motivation is to get elected and reelected, uh, and uh, you know we can think about the self-interest of legislators. They're, they're seeking out power and so forth. But even the most public-spirited legislator, the the only reason, the only way that that legislator is going to be able to do anything good is if the legislator gets reelected. So so anyway, so so there's always that that reelection motive. Okay, so if somehow uh, popular opinion pushes for more constitutional constraints on government, uh, that's a route toward uh, getting those sorts of things in the Constitution. Uh, now, the problem, we talked about this in our, your last episode, the problem is 
voters tend to be rationally ignorant. Uh, they're not well informed. Uh, and I'm not faulting voters for that either. Uh, that, uh, you know, people, citizens have other things to do with their lives. They have their jobs, they have their families, they want to engage in recreation, they might just want to relax. So you're putting a pretty big burden on citizens if you're saying, well, they should be well-informed voters. I mean, that's just the way the political process works. That's why we want to have a constitutionally constrained and limited government. That's why the American founders designed it that way. So that there wouldn't be a big burden on citizens. Uh, and if you go back and you think about the government that was created um, through the Constitutional Convention, you look at the Constitution of the United States, there was very little room for inputs from just the citizens in general. Uh, that the general public, the citizens got to vote on members of the House of Representatives. Um, as originally designed, the U.S. senators were chosen by the state legislatures. Uh, and that only changed in 1913 with the 17th Amendment to the Constitution. Uh, the judicial branch of the federal government's always been appointed. Uh, the president was chosen by an electoral college. Of course, nowadays we have popular votes for electors. But there's nothing in the Constitution that says it ought to be that way. <clears throat> the, the Constitution leaves it up to the states to determine how electors are chosen. And the idea, which never really panned out, was that that would insulate the choosing of the chief executive from popular opinion. So, I mean, you look at the design of the original Constitution. It, it was designed so that, so that uh, citizens had very little influence over the way that the, the government operated. There were checks and balances within government, uh, but we weren't relying on informed voters and uh, you know, uh, well-informed citizens uh, to decide the direction of government. Um, so I think, you know, these days, if maybe we can raise the visibility of some of these issues, that might be a way to get those constitutional constraints. Uh, you know, you have a lot of organizations like the Fraser Institute who are trying to do that. Yeah, I often, when I am talking about public choice issues and, and the, so what do we do? This is all very interesting. These problems are really interesting, but what do we do about them? A lot of times it does boil down to, you know, what do the citizens believe? What is popular opinion going to support? Um, and so that means we as educators do have a pretty important job. <laughs> okay, I'll feel important. <laughs> um, so one of the things I wanted to talk about a little bit more, last episode we talked about debt and uh, Buchanan's work related to, to government debt. Um, today, one of the kind of popular political ideas that is, is out there that my, my students like to talk about is uh, modern monetary theory, uh, which would be the post-Keynesian idea that um, we, you know, debt doesn't matter, and they do use the phrase, we owe it to ourselves. Um, you know, what, what would Buchanan say about, you know, this particular brand of kind of fiscal policy and, um, you, know, you know, what kind of, you know, challenges would he raise to it? 
Well, I think, uh, you know, one thing that uh, we've already mentioned is he was a supporter of a balanced budget amendment. Mm -hmm. So you can see that the argument that, well, debt doesn't matter, uh, that's not going to hold water for Buchanan, that that debt has to be serviced somehow in the future. Uh, and I, I mean, you know, fundamentally, when you when you look at the burden of the debt, one of the big burdens that a lot of people uh, uh, overlook is we have to pay interest uh, on the debt, right? So we can keep rolling it over, we can keep increasing the debt, but as we do, uh, interest payments uh, on the debt uh, have to go up and there's an opportunity cost there. I mean, any money that's spent on interest payments for debt, that's money that's not spent on roads, it's not spent on, on other government services. And so there's trade-offs, right? No such thing as a free lunch. And we have to kind of weigh those trade-offs. So that brings up something I wanted to get back to from the previous conversation as well. This idea that you know res responsible governance requires you know, cost-benefit analysis and really trying to seriously think about these opportunity costs. But as we talked about previously, costs are subjective and unseen. So, you know, given Buchanan's view about the subjective nature of costs, what does this mean about the usefulness of, you know, cost-benefit analysis in, in government decisions? Yeah, uh, um, I guess uh, when I would address that question, uh, it, it, uh, I don't know how heavily my answer would draw on Buchanan, uh, but ultimately, you look at cost-benefit analysis, and like the term says, it's a weighing of the costs against the benefits. Okay, so we're going to build a bridge. Let's uh, add up the costs. Let's add up the benefits. And if the benefits uh, exceed the costs, then that's a green light. We'll go ahead and, and, and build the bridge. Uh, and there are a lot of problems uh, with that approach. Um, one is that it doesn't consider other alternatives. Okay, we could build the bridge, but also maybe we could build a we could uh, buy a ferry and have a ferry in place of the bridge. Well, the cost benefit analysis doesn't include all of the uh, all of the other options. Also, tends not to look uh, at costs at the margin. You know, okay, so the bridge is a good idea, but so like a four lane bridge, two lane bridge. Uh, so, so there are a lot of I'm going to call these academic problems. There are a lot of academic problems with cost-benefit analysis, but the bigger problem is that when people do cost-benefit analyses, typically the people who are doing them aren't really doing an honest job. Uh, I mean, I hate to hate to frame it that way, but I'll frame it that way. Uh, then what tends to happen is somebody's hired to do a cost-benefit analysis, or maybe it's a government agency, so it's their job to do a cost-benefit analysis. And you figure out the people who are commissioning me to do this cost-benefit analysis, what answer do they want? And then you work backwards from there. What assumptions do I need uh, to make in order to get the answer that they want? And so, uh, you know, we can talk about all the little technical problems with cost-benefit analysis, but the real political problem with cost-benefit analysis is the people who are doing it are doing it with an eye toward getting the answer that the people who commissioned the study want. 
I have absolutely heard stories from my friends who have worked in regulatory agencies doing cost benefit analysis where they have said, you know, can you give us a cost benefit analysis of this policy? Okay, well, we haven't decided which direction we want to go. So can you give me another cost benefit analysis that gives us the other answer? Sure, sure. And then that way they could pick, you know, have some sort of justification for whichever way they decide to go with things. Well, early on in my career, there was a, uh, I was talking to a, a government employee uh, doing this kind of work. Uh, and he was giving me some career advice. Uh, I didn't take that career line, but, but he was saying, you know, when you do these studies, he said, the first thing you do is you find out what answer do the people want who are commissioning the study. And then you do the study, and it doesn't matter if it's shoddy work. They're going to like the study because it gets the answer they want. But he says, you can do great work, but if you don't get the answer they want, there's always something they can pick at you about and they're going to be dissatisfied with the study. You're not going to do that well in your career. So I mean, that, his advice to me was, first of all, you find out what answer they want. Then you work backward to get that answer. And even if you're doing shoddy work, you're going to be a success. <laughs> I'm glad you did not take that career advice. Yeah. <laughs> um, one thing that um, you'd mentioned that Buchanan's ideas are really, you know, kind of behind the scenes is this idea of, of liberty and classical liberalism. Um, how can we use some of the themes in Buchanan's work to, you know, maybe recast some of the conversations that people have today around social justice issues? Because social justice tends to be a group type of thing, um, but at the heart of a lot of modern social justice issues, it's it's often about, you know, extending that system of, of liberty to people who maybe don't quite have that. Um, so how might we be able to talk about things like, I don't know, like Black Lives Matter or, you know, women's rights movements or any kind of social, what we would call social justice, but from a Buchanan kind of natural liberty perspective? Yeah, I, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll try to channel some Buchanan here uh, in my answer, although I don't know of any place where he's specifically adjust, uh, addressing that question, that specific question. Uh, but uh, let's go back to something we talked about in the previous episode, and that's Buchanan's individualistic approach, uh, that really justice is a concept that applies to individuals not to groups, right? So uh, you can't, I mean, thinking about it, you can't have social injustice to blacks, for example. Uh, now for individual blacks, and maybe a lot of them, uh, some policies uh, might turn out to be unjust, but you know, I mean, if you're, if you're thinking about Black Lives Matter or, or social justice for, for blacks, I mean, start out thinking about President Obama and his family. You know, what disadvantages do they do they face? I mean, they're really in a privileged, privileged group. So a, lo a lot of so, sort of uh, uh, social justice issues that we might, you know, think, well, this applies to blacks, but doesn't apply to all uh, all blacks. Uh, that Buchanan takes an individualistic approach to the idea of justice, and I, and I would emphasize, I mean, justice is really a concept that applies to individuals, not to groups. Uh, and so 
the, here, his classical liberal tradition, if you think in that framework, really the best way to implement social justice is to decentralize, give individuals freedom, let them interact with other people on their own terms. Uh, that uh, I can easily picture government programs that we might envision to be unjust. But if you look at market exchange, people engage in market exchange voluntarily because they agree that it's to their, uh, to their mutual advantage. Uh, and you have an incentive in markets to seek out the best deal for you. Uh, and, and these social issues tend not to come into play. Um, I, uh, well, uh, you know, when you go to a restaurant and uh, the, uh, uh, the, can I call it the wait person comes to, the server comes to your table. Uh, and, you know, you might have a lot of disagreements with the, with, with the, with the server, but when you're ordering your dinner, do you ever say, now, now, wait a minute, before I order, what are your views on abortion? What political party are you a member? What religion are you a member of? Before I decide to order, you know, no, those issues never come up because in markets, we deal with people voluntarily on issues where we agree. So you and your server might disagree about just about everything, but you want a good meal. Your server wants a good tip. And so you get along great. You know, but in politics, the problem with, 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 with making these things a political issue is one set of rules, one set of laws, one set of policies applies to everybody. So there's a lot of room for disagreement there, um, you know, because I, you know, I might not like a policy you're going to impose on me. Other people don't like certain policies, but they apply to everybody. So I think the answer is decentralize. You know, the classical liberal answer is let people engage each other through mutually advantageous voluntary exchange rather than through top-down government force. Absolutely. Um, it can cater to the diversity of people's preferences that way. We can kind of vote with our feet, if you will. Um, in our previous conversation, we talked a little bit about how through that exchange process that politics is, um, people can hire lobbyists and kind of influence the political process in a way that benefits them. Um, and I certainly can't afford a lobbyist. To what extent, you know, are, is the product of the political process, is it going to have regressive effects? Does public choice identify any kind of regressive effects where maybe people who are lower income carry more of the burden of certain policies, or maybe even minority groups are disproportionately harmed by certain political process policies. You kind of talked about some of that in your previous answer, but I, I wanna think a little bit about, I guess what I'm getting at is, are some of the you know so-called social justice problems, are some of them a result of the political process itself, and we're just kind of misattributing like the cause. No, I, I don't think there's any particular incentive for politicians to to solve issues of social justice. I mean, first of all, there's just the vague notion of what social justice means, uh, and in politics, uh, what it's going to tend to mean is um, 
addressing whoever's talking the loudest, looking for people who have the most votes. Uh, I mean, so one of the things that uh, government does a lot of is redistribution. Uh, okay, so maybe that's uh, oriented toward solving some problems of social justice or inequities and so forth. But when you look at government redistribution programs, the biggest federal government redistribution program, in fact, the biggest federal uh, program at all is Social Security. Um, so it was designed to help out older people. And if you go back to the 1930s, uh, a lot of older people were in, in financial difficulty. Uh, things have changed a lot since the 1930s. Uh, elder people tend to be better off, uh, but Social Security continues to pay people based on how old they are, based on how much they paid into the program. Maybe there's some equity in that. Uh, but, uh, but the redistribution goes to older people. It doesn't go to poor people. Same thing is true of Medicare. Right, that's a, a program that provides health care to older people, not needy people. But that makes sense because there's a lot of uh, older people. They tend to vote in higher proportion uh, than the population as a whole. So basically, you're catering toward political support. Right. So you look at, at charitable activities and the charitable activities really aren't aimed at the people who need it the most. They're aimed at the people who can provide the most political support. You look at, I mean, uh, other things, you know, tax deductions you can get for charitable contributions to symphony orchestras, to operas, uh, you know, to things that upper income people want. I don't see too many uh, charitable organizations that are providing rap concerts and that sort of thing, right? So, I mean, basically the political benefits go to the people who are politically powerful. That is very, very true. And I think about things like, you know, who who gets the most of the agricultural subsidies? It's not tiny farms. It's it's large corporate farms. Sure. Agribusiness. It is. So there's a lot of that going on. A lot of the redistribution going from uh, the general population to people who are very well connected. And as you said in our last discussion, have lower transaction costs essentially. Right. How do I make my transaction costs lower? How do I bargain more effectively if I really want that political process to express my views? Yeah, you have to have something to offer. Uh, so you, you make your transaction costs lower by, uh, if you're interested as a citizen, uh, by offering legislators political support, I've got a lot of voters behind me, offering them money, offering them campaign contributions. Uh, that's how you lower your transaction costs. But it's difficult for an individual to do. So if you look at interest groups like AARP representing elder people, you look at the National Rifle Association. Uh, I mean, those are citizen groups where the leadership in those organizations face low transaction costs. So they can go to members of Congress, they can bargain to try to get what they want and pretty successfully um, because they face low transaction costs. The reason they face low transaction costs is they have a lot of members behind them and those members pay dues. So the organizations can make political contributions. Uh, those members, there's a lot of voters there. So, the leaders of those organizations 
uh, can go to their uh, members and say, these are the candidates who support our issues. You need to vote for those candidates. That's the kind of political support that enables the leaders of those organizations to face low transaction costs. But you, Rosie, that's a tougher proposition. Now, you might be uh, uh, like a gun-toting Texan uh, <laughs> and decide you're going to join the National Rifle Association. Yeah, I'm 100% behind what they're doing. Uh, and and if when you do that, or you could be an, an older person now like me uh, and join the AARP. But when you do that, you're not getting more power yourself. You're giving more power to the leaders of those organizations who have low transaction costs. Right? So the leaders of those interest groups, they face low transaction costs. They get supporters behind them who make contributions, who join, who are members. But the individual members still don't have any power themselves. They can make their contributions and so forth and give more power to the leaders of those groups, but the individuals who are in the groups, the individuals like you and me, we still don't have any political power. Uh, so uh, it's, it's tough to do. You need to figure out how can I start an organization where I can get lots of supporters and lots of donors? That sounds like work. No. <laughs> no, it is work. I mean, it's, it's tough to do. Uh, and, and that's, I mean, that's the transaction cost that creates a low transaction cost group, the lobbyists, the legislators, the interest groups, and a high transaction cost group, which is most citizens and most voters. So we're nearing the end of our conversation. So I want to talk a little bit about um, what are some of the ideas of Buchanan's that you think uh, he got wrong? Oh, that's an easy question. I think he got everything right. <laughs> however, however, I think he was he was overly optimistic um, in the way that he's talking about designing constitutional rules. We haven't really talked too much about constitutional rules specifically, but that was was one of Buchanan's big ideas that he was pushing um, that that we make decisions. Uh, at a at a post-constitutional level within the rules, but also we make decisions about what rules we want to have. And he drew a parallel there uh, between rules of the game in sports uh, and the decisions we make when we play. Um, so we have certain constitutional rules and we act within those rules, which are constraints on our, on our behavior. Um, now, to step back and think about this as an analogy, consider a basketball game. Uh, and so there are certain rules of the game. Um, if you uh, shoot a basket from the court, you get two points. There's a three-point line. So if you step behind the three-point line and shoot, then you get three points. Foul shots are one point each. There's certain rules about what constitutes a foul. Uh, so those are the rules of the game. And so when the game is played, there are the 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 players there are making choices within the rules of the game. You might decide I'm going to deliberately foul somebody. You know what the rule is. Okay, that's a foul. There's a penalty that's involved with the foul. And, and uh, the referees are involved in the rules of the game also, right? So to the referee to decide that was a foul, that wasn't a foul, right? So those are, are what Buchanan would think of as post-constitutional decisions. They're decisions made within the rules of the game. 
but also we make constitutional decisions. We decide what the rules are. So, um, you know, think back to when the three-point line was instituted in basketball. I don't remember exactly when that was, early 70s or something. But anyways, uh, uh, many decades ago, no matter where you shot from, two points. And then they instituted the three-point line. So we changed the rules of the game. And that changes people's behavior, right? So now, if you're a good outside shooter, you're a more valuable player relative to somebody who's, you know, the, the big guy who's dunking up close to the basket. Um, so we changed the rules of the game, and uh, uh, that changes the way we play. So if you think about, and this goes back to some ideas of, of uh, justice we talked about before, but but what makes a fair game? Uh, let's say that um, you know we watch a football game, and the end result, thirty-five to three. That's the score at the end of the game. Fair game. The way that Buchanan would answer that is if the procedures that led to the result were fair, then the outcome is fair. Fair outcomes are the result of fair procedures, right? So you can't judge the, the you know, is it, is it, you know, 35 to 3, is that a fair game? Can't judge by looking at the outcome. Buchanan would say the same thing about the distribution of income, right? This corporate CEO gets paid 100 times more than the average worker in the company. Is that fair? Now, we don't know from looking at the outcome. Fair, uh, fair outcomes are the result of fair procedures. So how do we decide on fair procedures? And there we go back to those constitutional rules. They could be written in a constitution, or they might just be the rules, the legislative rules, rules that, that, that we abide by. But fair outcomes are the result of fair rules. How do we decide what's a fair rule? And Buchanan's criterion on this was unanimity. Everybody agrees. So, uh, and this is one of the, uh, an, an innovation in Buchanan's uh, thought, goes back to the calculus of consent that he wrote with Gordon Tulloch, that, uh, you know, a lot of times we think majority rule has some special characteristics to it. But Buchanan would say, no, it's not majority rule, it's unanimity. Because with unanimity, everybody agrees, so we know everybody's better off. With majority rule, some people agree, some people don't. We have no way of knowing that the gains to the gainers outweigh the losses to the losers. So unanimity is the way that, that, that we decide. Uh, so, you know, are the rules that we have in our society, are they fair rules? Are, is there social justice there? Um, and Buchanan would go back to the criterion of unanimity. Uh, if everybody would agree to these rules, then they're fair rules. Uh, now, he, uh, in one of his books, The Limits of Liberty, he uh, uh, had a little device to decide whether these are fair rules. We'll call it a thought experiment. But let's go back to a state of anarchy where there are no rules. And then we require everybody to get together and unanimously agree on the rules. And the fair rules are the rules that everybody would agree to. Uh, and so, you know, Buchanan's thought in, in looking at social justice and looking at society, uh, if these are rules that everybody would agree to, if we started afresh, no rules, if these are rules everybody would agree to, then those are just rules. Those are fair rules. Uh, and... Uh, 
So it's an interesting thought experiment, but I think, you know, one way that, I mean, I would question it in some regards. And one is you don't know what rules people would actually agree to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Buchanan said this in, in The Limits of Liberty. You know, he, uh, he was somewhat critical of John Rawls, um, who had a theory of justice where he talked about, here are rules that people would agree to. Buchanan was critical of Rawls. He says, you don't, you don't know what rules people would agree to. Um, and so that's an issue, you know, if we're trying to use Buchanan's criterion of unanimity, hypothetical agreement to some rules, well, we, we just, we don't know what, what rules people would agree to. And another problematic issue with Buchanan's framework there is it seems like uh, it could possibly be used to justify just about everything that government would do. You know, well, government's doing this. You know, oh, I don't agree with that. But you would agree if we went back to anarchy and renegotiated the rules. That is exactly what I was going to say. It also seems like which version of anarchy he has in mind is going to matter quite a bit. If you take a Hobbesian view of all against all, I might agree to a whole lot more than I would agree to if we talk about anarchy as more of a kind of maybe group against group situation. Sure, and if, and if you look at Buchanan's writing, he's pretty clear it's Hobbesian anarchy. He specifically refers to Hobbes, uh, talks about that war of all against all, and early in The Limits of Liberty, he talks about some utopian vision of, of, uh, of anarchy, a market, a market anarchy, you know, um, and, he, and he dismisses it in a sense. You know, he just says, you know, just a little reflection will show, you know, it's, it's unrealizable. Uh, so he's obviously talking about Hobbesian anarchy. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, so someday that's a paper, right? Let's renegotiate from a different state of anarchy and see what we get. Um, another thing I want to ask is, you know, what do you think is one of Buchanan's most underrated or, or misinterpreted or misunderstood ideas? Yeah, that's a tough question. Um, I mean, I think, you know, first of all, just going back to this, uh, this idea of um, uh, individuals subjectively choosing the idea of subjectivism, uh, you know, I think most economists, maybe most social scientists, would give lip service to that idea. Yeah, I agree. And yet the framework that we use um, is different, right? We assume people have utility functions. We assume that they make choices somewhat like machines, right? We give them utility functions and they mechanistically make decisions. Uh, And Buchanan said, no, actually their utility functions come from choice rather than choice coming from utility functions. We make choices and from that, we, uh, you can determine what our utility function is rather than having a utility function and making choices with reference to your utility function. When you think about the way you choose, I mean, isn't that the way? You know, you have a choice between, you know, vanilla ice cream or chocolate. What, you look at your utility function and say, what's going to maximize my utility? No, you choose the one that you like the best 
And it's the choices you make that determine your utility function. It's not your utility function that determines the choices you make. So that's a kind of a subtle point, but it's a starting point for, for Buchanan. Uh, and, you know, and, and it points to his emphasis that what we should be analyzing is exchange. Let's look at the institutions of exchange rather than choice and how people make choices, how societies make choices. So that may, you know maybe that's an idea. Oh, I like that. I I really like um, what the things that Buchanan had to say about you know what should economics be? Are, are we really solving some kind of technological math problem? Is that all we are, or is it something deeper than that? Um, obviously, I like the Buchanan view. <laughs> sure, and maybe another thing that. Uh, that Buchanan talked about, and again, we mentioned this, this before, is the idea that in social science, the, the whole idea of social science is to understand society so we can make it better. So that there's an inherent normative aspect to it. I mean, we wanna do positive analysis. We wanna say, how does society work? But the reason we're doing that is to try to improve things. So there's an inherent normative aspect to social science where we're, looking to see if we can find ways to make things work better, right? So I don't know if this was kind of a trite example, but you know, Buchanan's push for a balanced budget amendment. He's not just looking at how the budgetary process works. He's saying, here's something that I think would, would make the system work better. Now, do you think that there are some perhaps more maybe neoclassical or mainstream economists that you know, just you can't get criticized for the normativity inherent in some of his work. Well, and, and I think uh, a lot of his work doesn't really have that normative slant to it. Yeah. I mean, a lot of his work is looking at the way that's just, that uh, governments work, looking at the way that collective decision making is undertaken. Um, but he did have that classical liberal vision, and he explicitly wrote several articles um, supporting that classical liberal vision, saying the reason we want to understand how government works is to look for ways to make it work better. That, I, I, I guess I can't think of too many critics of Buchanan uh, within economics who are talking about you know, him taking a normative approach rather than a positive approach. What are, if you could, you know, think of what might be one of the more major criticisms of Buchanan's work? Tough question. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I tend to, as I said before, uh, one of the one of the areas I think is a is a little bit weak is his reliance on unanimity to develop constitutional rules in that the framework that he's developed is so hypothetical mm -hmm. uh, that we're never actually going to have that unanimous agreement. And it's too easy to use that as a rhetorical argument to say people would agree to, you know, this or that or the other, you know, you're just trying to be a free rider, uh, you know, renegotiation from anarchy, you would agree. Uh, so that's one area where I, I think maybe some criticism might be leveled. Well, in the book, you and Don Boudreaux provide a really 
thorough list of readings for people who are interested in learning more about James Buchanan. Uh, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to recommend maybe some work of your own or anything, any new projects that you have going on where um, people could take a look at that. And I know you're a student of Buchanan's and, and he's always in the background of, of what we do. So. Well, okay, I'll toot my own horn for a, a, a couple of books uh, that uh, in 2018, I published a book titled Political Capitalism. Uh, and that book looks at the interaction of the political and economic elite uh, and discusses the way that uh, over time, as interest groups go, grow stronger, that more and more are uh, the interaction between the political and economic systems leads to uh, an economy where profits are more and more determined by political connections rather than producing value for consumers. Uh, so that's my 2018 book, Political Capitalism. I do have a book that's coming out in uh, next year, 2023. Um, it's titled Following Their Leaders. Uh, and it's a book about where people get their political preferences. Now, we talked a little bit about this, especially in our last uh, episode. Uh, we I suggested that uh, people don't have an incentive to be well-informed, uh, that people might vote for things that they wouldn't choose if the choice were theirs alone. Um, and so this book is looking at where people actually get their political preferences. Uh, and uh, a lot of times there's a, a lot of social science research that shows that, that people adopt the political preferences of their family, of their peer group, of people who they interact with. Uh, and I'm suggesting in my book that people tend to anchor on a political party, on a political candidate, maybe on an ideology. And most of their policy preferences are adopted from that anchor. Um, and uh, my claim in the book is that those anchors tend to be the political elite, that people adopt their political preferences from the political elite. You have these voting models in public choice where we assume voters have preferences and candidates and parties adjust their platforms to conform with voter preferences. I'm arguing that causation goes the other way, that political elites offer policy platforms to voters and citizens and citizens adopt those, po those policy preferences of, of the political elite. And think about it this way, just as an example. You know, you might be thinking, well, you know, I'm, I'm pro-choice on the abortion issue. I think we need more gun control. You know, I wish the government were more involved in health care. That's what Democrats think, so I'm a Democrat. My argument is causation goes the other way. You're thinking, I'm a Democrat, and Democrats are pro-choice. Democrats are, are uh, gun control uh, advocates, you know. So... Uh, your political preferences tend to come from the political elite. That's interesting. Uh, that, yeah, that book, I think that book is coming out in February of 2023. So, Well, both of those sound like must-reads for anybody who's interested in public choice. I'm going to have to put them on the reading lists for my future public choice classes, along with your advanced introduction to public choice. Lots of Randy Holcomb on my reading list. Well, thanks. Uh, I'll look forward to your feedback when you look at them. <laughs> well, 
thank you so much for chatting with us again. Um, it was a pleasure to see you and to hear all about Buchanan. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. So thank you very much for inviting me to come on. You've been listening to Essential Scholars, a new podcast series that explores the ideas and insights of some of history's most influential thinkers. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe and head over to EssentialScholars.org to learn more. See you next time.